Welcome to the AWPT Podcast, a safe space for personal trainers and coaches who want to learn, grow, and feel heard in the fitness industry. Each week, we'll bring you industry-relevant discussions on all things coaching, mindset, and professional development, empowering you with the tools to be a competent and confident coach. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the AWPT podcast. Today, I am joined by Monica, and we're going to be talking all about fueling for performance. But before we do, I would love Monica to jump in, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you love, all of that good stuff. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Tara. Um, So I am an accredited practicing dietitian and sports dietitian working in private practice at Ideal Nutrition in Brisbane. Um, I love training myself. So in the space of that strength and conditioning, CrossFit sort of space, I like to change it up every now and again, but I do also really love working with those sorts of clients who, um, yeah, are athletes in that field and sort of helping their performance through a nutrition perspective. Um, So yeah, that's a bit about me, sort of um, what I do and the clients that I sort of like to work with. And how long have you been practicing as a dietitian? So I'm still relatively new to the profession. I've just sort of ticked over one year of working as a dietitian um, and was lucky enough to sort of become a sports dietitian so early on in my dietitian career as well. Um, so yeah, very new to the field from, you know, compared to a lot of other dietitians out there, but I've already learned so much in my first year and I'm yeah, absolutely loving it. That's so exciting. And I suppose, have you always been interested in the health and fitness and nutrition space, or was that something that like came about later on in life? How did you kind of fall into, not fall into the profession? Cause obviously you have to study really hard to, to become a dietitian, but, um, yeah, what was that process like for you? Yeah, so I'd say I've always been interested in health and fitness. I was always a very sporty kid growing up. I even have memories of like asking my mom whatever we were having for dinner, like, mom, is this healthy? Like, um, so I always sort of had that interest. I I would say then heading into my sort of teenage years, um, I did develop an eating disorder. So I think sort of overcoming that and going through that journey was a big sort of motivator for me to get into the field and learn a lot more about it so that I could then help others in future as well. So definitely sort of overcoming that eating disorder was a big driver for me, wanting to study dietetics um, and get into that. So yeah, I'd say it sort of definitely came from that as a motivator, um, but I've always had an, an interest in the space and love being sporty. Um, yeah, love sort of healthy eating um, and also really value performance and how we can best um, support that also from a nutrition perspective as well. Yeah, I always find it so interesting talking to different health professionals and chatting about sort of how they came into this space because I think because health is such, you know, an important area but also like often such a deeply personal area for people it's so interesting chatting to people about what their sort of motivations were or like their backstory is. Cause I think for so many people in this space, it is such like a personal um, mission almost. And like the people that we want to help or the clients that we end up working with are often so deeply related with how we got into the space in the first place, or even the types of people that we might've needed when we first like got into fitness or discovered food or like all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, so often we want to be the type of person that helps the type of people that we were. And it sounds like for you that that's like very much the case. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you said that sort of being the person that you sort of needed when you went through it. I find that so common in the space um, and the areas that people specialize in will often be sort of an area that they used to struggle with. So really cool to see that people can sort of use that as a motivator and driver to help others. Definitely. And I think it goes like so deeply, you know, within that because obviously like working for yourself or working in this space like can be really taxing or it can be sort of confronting in some spaces or you know tiring or like all of that kind of stuff and so I do think it is important to have 
I guess, like a why of why are we doing this? Like, who are we trying to help um, to sort of be able to fall back on? It makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Having that thing that's bigger um, than yourself, bigger than your own sort of wants and desires, like having that higher reason behind doing something I think is so important for longevity in the profession because it can be so challenging. So completely agree. Definitely. And so I suppose within that, you touched on that a little bit before in terms of the types of clients that you do work with and the area of dietetics that you sort of like specialize in. But if we were talking about, I suppose, your background, you know, with potentially like disordered eating patterns and and all of that kind of stuff, is that, are they the type of clients that you prefer to work with? Or is it more with those kind of athletes? Or I mean, I suppose they could that those two things can very much be related as well. Yeah, absolutely. I do see a broad range of clients, whether it's um, sort of gen pop, whether it's overcoming certain medical conditions. I'd say maybe half of my clients are athletes or in the sporting um, field. And then I also have some disordered eating and eating disorder clients. Um, I do enjoy working with them. And I think, you know, especially if it is similar sort of behaviors and patterns to what I have previously gone to I obviously can relate and have that empathy um, towards them as well Um, but then again a lot of people that would come to me as a client with certain goals it might be weight loss or it might be performance it might be overcoming a certain medical condition I do also see in practice so many people that come to me for a certain goal can still have those underlying disordered eating patterns where whether they know it or not it might be intentional it might be unintentional um it might be because they're you know following certain dieting trends or whatever it is thinking that's the best thing for them um whereas they're just sort of stuck in that cycle um and that wasn't their intention from the get-go so I think it is really important to sort of screen for those disordered eating patterns even in clients that don't come to you for help with that in particular Um, so I'd say it's a lot more common than you might think um, a lot more common than the people who specifically come to you for help with that Um, so yeah it is something that I see and something that I think you should always sort of screen for with any client depending on what their goals are. That's such a good point too in that you know, and I think for coaches in general is that, you know, people are going to come to you for a variety of different reasons. But I think just because of the way that, you know, as as a society, we've been conditioned or educated or not educated properly around food, there are going to be so many different, um, or even just like the way people were brought up and like the the decades that they were brought up in and the food myths in and around that time, so many people are going to be impacted by misinformation, disordered behaviours, disordered habits, all of that kind of stuff. And so even if that hasn't, I guess, turned into a full-blown eating disorder, I think you'd be hard-pressed to come by someone who has no concerns or misinformation around food just in general yeah 100% agree and so how do you screen for those kind of disordered behaviors or patterns or thoughts yeah good question I'd say it can sometimes be very obvious Um, some people might you know bring up I feel really guilty when I eat this or I find it hard to eat more even though I should be eating more to support my performance or it might be very subtle or something that you have to delve a little bit deeper into so what it might look like is for example taking a diet history of what someone might eat um, day to day um, and this is without judgment it's just sort of getting to know what their lifestyle is like what foods they enjoy, um, yeah, what their day-to-day sort of looks like. You might sort of then see certain patterns in their food choices. It might be extremely low calorie options all the time. It might be um, certain eating behaviors around fasting for a certain period of the day, or it might be all of these different little signs and then sort of delving into the why behind those patterns um, and sort of seeing if there are any 
distorted reasonings behind, you know, that restriction or behind, yeah, certain behaviors. I think delving into that why is really important to, yeah, bring up if it is an issue, if it is something that we need to address as well. I think the why even on the other end of the spectrum in terms of explaining or educating clients on why they should or need to be eating a certain way in terms of like the benefits of those foods that you know might be clouded in fear I know like carbs and fats are typically like a big one for different people and obviously there's also going to be different I guess like not even gender differences but I think often there is conditioning around you know because women are a condition like you need to be smaller all the time and like you constantly have to be like losing weight and all of this kind of stuff. A lot of the marketing around that comes with, you know, fat burners or like keto or like, yeah, no carbs or high fat or like whatever it is. And so on the other end of the spectrum, not only sort of discussing why that might be a food fear for them, but also why these things that they're avoiding are actually going to be beneficial to them is also going to be important in that process. Yeah, 100%. I do love sort of nerding out into the science behind the why for having more carbs, having more fats, why it's so important for your health, which can then lead to why it's so important for your performance, because we know that if you don't have good health, then you can't perform at your best. So it is a really important underlier there. Um, but yeah, definitely super important to delve into the reasoning and the research behind why implementing more food or more of a certain thing into your diet can be super important for them to also have that buy into it um, rather than just being like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, my dietitian's telling me to eat more carbs or eat more fats. I don't really know why she just told me to. I think it's so important to, yeah, delve into the research, the reasoning behind it, obviously in a um, in a suitable way to sort of relay the, that mm. research, um, not in super scientific terms. Um, but, yeah, really important for them to get that buy-in and to really understand the extent of how important it is. And in your experience, do you find the clients that you work with that are, whether they're sort of professional athletes or amateur athletes, but in that sort of like competition space rather than, I guess, like more gen pop clients, um, do you find they're potentially like more interested in the why because they like have a bit more of a motivation in terms of that buy-in? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, yeah, that population is definitely very interested in the scientific, um, sort of side to nutrition, um, and looking at whether it's, you know, different graphs or getting examples of studies where a certain thing works for a certain sport or a certain situation. I definitely say they are quite interested in that. Um, I guess as well, you know, in the sort of medical nutrition space of things, whether it's overcoming high cholesterol or overcoming, you know, whatever it may be, um, might be overcoming sort of PCOS symptoms and helping with that, um, helping with the research for certain clients or often find it quite interesting as well. But I think definitely the athletic population are super motivated to gain that deeper understanding and be feel better educated in that space as well yeah and I suppose too you know obviously like general populations or, or clients that may be presenting with a you know a, or have a condition obviously like their buy-in is just sort of general health which is you know the most important thing at the end of the day but athletes are I suppose competitive by nature and so if they're goal you know within their sport or whatever is that they want to sort of win or perform at their best they're potentially going to be like more motivated to you know eat the eat the foods or fuel in a way that is going to benefit their performance so I would love to I guess dive into some of those differences a little bit more today and I guess talk about yeah, some of those differences in terms of fueling for performance versus general health or even aesthetics, really. Um, what are some of the, first of all, the, the main things that people come to you that are potentially myths 
that people come to you with in terms of food and fueling for performance? And then we can touch on, you know, what are some of the things that you want to be prioritizing as far as performance versus just like general health? Yeah, for sure. I'd say um, myths around fueling for performance might be um, that you just need to really have high protein, everything all the time. Um, and up your supplement game by having every supplement under the sun and that's how you're going to achieve success from a nutrition perspective whereas we know that as the sort of base of the nutrition pyramid for fueling for performance we actually have that food first approach nailing getting in enough adequate total energy throughout the day then yes, getting in enough protein, but it doesn't need to be, you know, overboard. It might be between a certain range um, and just hitting that will be sufficient enough for optimizing performance. We then need to look at getting in enough carbohydrates. If you have a high intensity sport, we really need to support that high intensity with enough premium fuel, which is going to be your carbohydrates. Um, Then getting in enough fats for overall general health as well. So it's not just about sort of looking at yeah I need a lot of protein I need all the supplements it's actually getting that basic uh, that basis um, and foundation of the pyramid correct getting uh, nailing that down and then we can look at sort of timing of foods we can look at um, those sports specific nutrition strategies around your training Um, then we can look at as sort of a last thing or the smallest part at the top of the pyramid are your ergogenic aids, like your supplements and things like that. But I think it's just really important to sort of flip the pyramid of what people would expect nutrition um, to look like for performance um, and just sort of focus more on the, the foundations in general nutrition habits and lifestyle habits um, and then sort of look at supplements um, as a last sort of thing um, for those one percenters. Yeah, I think that's so key. And obviously, you know, that also is going to apply for general population clients is it should always be, I guess, like food first or, as you say, like that base of the pyramid, even just in terms of energy requirement. Um, Obviously, people that are, you know, sports or like into sports or um, athletes potentially are going to have more energy requirements than just general population clients. Um, so I suppose, well, that's just my assumption anyway. So maybe I should clarify that with you in terms of, yeah, those energy requirements for, um, athletes versus general population. What would be the differences there? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at energy requirements, we take into consideration, um, our total daily energy expenditure, which is made up of things like your resting metabolic rate, the thermic effect of food your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that's things like, you know, walking around, doing chores around the house, doing grocery shopping, sort of your non-planned exercise. And then we have our sort of planned exercise or exercise activity thermogenesis, which is your planned training, your gym sessions and things like that. So I guess the the first three that I mentioned, resting metabolic rate, thermic effect of food, and sort of that non uh, that yeah, non-incidental activity that would be sort of quite similar for both your non-active population and your active population, whereas the main um, sort of difference is that planned training um, for, yeah, the difference between athletes and gen pop. Um, And then we sort of look at, okay, how much activity are these athletes doing? Um, How long in duration? How much volume are they doing? Um, What's the intensity? And all of these things will be taken into consideration to work out what their energy requirements are. So sort of the more volume, the longer they're doing it for, the higher the intensity is generally more and more energy that they require each day Um, so that's when you'll see a big difference between the general population's energy requirements and what athletes require day to day to fuel for the work that they're doing fuel for recovery fuel for performance um, and that sort of thing and what about um, energy availability throughout the day I know um, one of our um, nutritional educators for AWPT um, who I work with as well, has has talked to me about, yeah, sort of spacing out 
food or increasing the types of foods that are potentially going to be longer lasting or even like you you mentioned sort of meal timing before as well um but yeah like making sure that you've got enough energy not just in total from like start of the day to the end of the day um but also enough that sort of like keeps you going and sustained throughout the day um what does that I suppose mean or what might that look like Yeah, I love this topic. I think it's so important to look at not just your total energy intake throughout the day, but also how we space it, how we um, sort of have it before and after training and things like that. So it actually can play a really crucial role in your energy levels across the day, your performance in the gym and your recovery after a training session. So I think being able to, for example, spread, have regular meals, whether that's breakfast, lunch and dinner and snacks in between is sort of a pretty standard approach that most people would have. Um, And again, also having those balanced meals. So getting in enough protein at each of those meals as well can really help with sort of the muscle growth and recovery process um, and sort of maintaining that lean muscle mass as well. Um, So if we compare that then to say someone who's doing intermittent fasting or someone who maybe unintentionally is even just having most of their food say after 1 p.m. they haven't really eaten much throughout the day gets to 1 p.m. they have something small and then the rest of their food is at dinner and after dinner and they're sort of just ravenous by the end of the day for someone like that you might see really low energy levels across the day Um, their appetite goes from one extreme to the next they might not be hungry um, you know that first half of the day and then they all of a sudden become Uh, ravenous and they're having so much food and then that sort of leads into the next day and it almost becomes a cycle of you know over and under eating appetites all over the place Um, these habits aren't going to really support performance in the gym particularly if they are quite active and having regular training sessions with needing to perform at their best so yeah it's super important to make sure that we do have that regularity and consistency in our eating um, to support training Um, and also recovery for the next session too. And with those kind of like meals that we are sort of spacing out or not even meals necessarily, but the types of foods or maybe even the macros, if we go into it a little bit more, that we should be prioritizing. Like I know Amy, um, my coach and the um, nutritional educator for AWPT, um, she, you know, has got me eating an LCM bar or like a sort of a fast acting carb, um, quite early on in the day, like before I can sit down for my main breakfast, because I'm, you know, going off coaching first thing in the morning and I don't necessarily have time to have like a big proper meal. So she's sort of like have a fast acting carb and then ideally a protein shake as well. Um, first so that you've got something in your stomach because I was finding I was just exhausted throughout the whole day despite the fact that I was like I promise I'm having like balanced meals throughout the day but you know apparently it's not enough um and then you know switching from right rice right rice (laughs) white rice um to like a brown rice and quinoa kind of thing that potentially has a bit more fiber so that might last me a little bit longer throughout the day um and having a bit more sort of starchy carbs in my meals versus those kind of like faster acting carbs. So like for me, I suppose a lot of those changes have been with the types of carbs that I'm eating, but I'm curious to know in terms of like protein, carbs and fats as I guess like the key micronutrients, what are the types of changes that we might be making with our athletes to keep them more sustained throughout the day and make sure that they do have enough energy levels to perform and also just like live (laughs) and work? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, how you mentioned about having those more complex carbohydrates that have more starches and fibers to get that slow release of energy throughout the day. So I'd say from even for athletes and also the general population, it can be good to have that really, um, that foundation of those more complex carbs that are going to give you a sustained release of energy throughout the day, um, as well as building that balanced bowl of having, you know, a good source of lean protein, those complex carbohydrates, 
a smaller amount of those healthy fats. We don't necessarily need them in as large amounts because they're most our most um, energy dense macronutrient. And then building your plate with some vegetables as well, obviously for the micronutrients, antioxidants, fiber um, as well. So I think that can form a really good basis for all of our meals across the day to get that sustained energy um, throughout the day and to also eat enough. Then we look at, say it's before a training session, we might need to top up our glycogen stores with some extra carbohydrates. And if this is say 30 to 60 minutes before the training session, we do want to look at options that are going to be low in fat and low in fiber. So that's our carbohydrates. And these ones might actually be a little bit more processed or a bit more refined than usual. Like your example of the LCM bar, it might be, um, if it's really close to the session, it might be something like some dried fruit or your Powerades and Gatorades, um, or a piece of toast with some jam, for example. So these things serve a purpose of giving us enough quick energy that's going to be a fast acting carbohydrate um, to be able to perform in that session without sort of causing us any gut issues or feeling super heavy and slow in our training sessions. Um, Because if, if we were to have a carbohydrate source that was quite high in fiber or paired it with some fats, that's going to slow down the digestion of that carbohydrate, meaning we'll probably feel a little bit sick if it's a high intensity training session. Um, we might not get that those carbohydrates sort of digested and in our blood as quickly as we need it to be. Um, so these are all the reasons why we would look at sort of changing up the different types of carbohydrates depending on what time of day it is. I guess as well, another important thing, even if it wasn't um, sort of right before a training, a training session, we could look at more of those fast acting carbohydrates such as like you would have maybe of a morning before your breakfast, even if that wasn't before training, that could simply be from just trying to get in enough energy in the day if you generally struggle to do so. Um, And if you're someone who is really struggling to eat a total sort of volume of food that you need to get in, we can look at those more refined options, whether it's smoothies, whether it's more refined carbs, to meet your energy requirements if you generally struggle to do so through whole foods. So, so many different strategies you can look at depending on what your goals are, what your energy requirements are, what time of day it is, when your training session is. Um, So yeah, really important to keep all those different things in mind. Yeah, the time of day, I think even of like when the training um, takes place is I think a factor that people don't necessarily consider as much well I mean they consider it but it's not necessarily talked about as much because I think for a lot of general population clients typically they're either going to be training before or after work so either sort of like quite early in the morning or late at night um, or later at night I should say whereas potentially you know more professional athletes or people that are doing this sort of like competitively might have a little bit more flexibility or the training is going to be more of a priority or part of their work. And so they are obviously going to put more of a focus around nutrition in order to fuel their performance. But I know even if I use myself as an example, when I first got in, and I wouldn't call myself an athlete, I would classify myself as gen pop more than anything. But um, because when I first started training, I was typically doing it more in the mornings, like before work or or whatnot. I think a lot of people are going to come into that with not very much food, depending on the time of day that they're training. And so it might have to be those like lighter um, or more fast acting carbohydrates that they're having sort of first thing in the morning if they do want to have something in their stomach versus, you know, if people are training later at night, they've obviously had two or three meals throughout the day before that. And I know when I first started training, I like much preferred training first thing in the morning because I felt like a little bit lighter and I was doing more of that higher intensity exercise. But then, you know, as I got into coaching and then my mornings were filled up with clients, I was forced to train in the afternoon. And so again, by that point, I was training with like breakfast and lunch at least and found that I was a lot stronger, funnily enough. Um, and then now I really, really struggle if I just coincidentally have to train in the morning. Like I find I really need to have had 
I would say at the very least two meals before I train in order to have one, the energy, but two, just like the strength and the fuel to be able to lift and do strength training. Whereas, yeah, before having any kind of thing in my stomach made me feel heavy. And it's just so interesting how your body gets used to the different um, times of day and also, yeah, the foods that you've got in your system in order to train. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like going from one to the other, even from personal experience of doing mostly morning sessions or mostly afternoon sessions, like if I'm training mostly of an afternoon and I have to do a morning session, like I find I do really struggle, (laughs) even from like a sleep perspective, but also Mm. that's when I'm dull in making sure I am getting those carbohydrates in early in the morning to support my session as much as possible. Could look at things like caffeine as well to help. But yeah, generally I find going from one to the other can be a big struggle. Um, But I think for the people who generally train of a morning and they like to feel light um, going into their session and they think, you know, the last thing I want is to have something to eat before I go in because I'll feel sick. Generally for a client like that, we would look at just trying something small, whether it's, you know, half a banana, whether it's a crumpet with a bit of honey on it, whether it's an LCM bar or some dried fruit, whatever it is, you can actually start really small. And then over time, um, you're sort of, you're training your gut and your gut gets used to having something at that time of day, um, gets used to digesting that food to then give you more energy for those morning sessions. And a lot of the time, or most of the time people will feel the difference and be like, you know what, I actually can't train without anything anymore. I need that small amount of food of a morning that's going to be give me some carbohydrates um, to provide that energy for the session. So, yeah, super important to make sure that we're looking at that pre-training snack of a morning. And if you think you can't do it at the start, just trying something small and sort of, yeah, building on that over time. Yeah, definitely. I think that's such a good tip. And even, you know, what we've discussed in terms of making those small snacks um, before training, if it is early in the morning, that little bit more accessible and not being afraid of having something slightly more processed. Because I think, you know, again, one of those kind of like food myths is that like, God forbid you have anything like with refined sugar or anything processed and all of that kind of stuff. And just, yeah, reframing that in terms of it's actually not the enemy. Obviously, like you don't want to be having that as every single food source throughout the day. But like, (laughs) I remember again, back in the day when I was trying to bulk for the first time and again, really struggling to get in the amount of food that I needed to have and having to like eat my overnight oats at like 5am in the car before I started coaching clients and like wanting to die. Um, Cause it was just like the worst thing that I wanted at that time of the morning. Um, but yeah, as you say, like having something like a smoothie, whether that's just, you know, a protein shake or obviously with smoothies, because it's blended, it is a little bit easier to sort of consume if you're putting in, you know, extra stuff on top of it or yeah that LCM bar or the crumpet with the jam or the honey or um, a rice cake with honey and something like that like having something that is a bit more accessible and doesn't feel like a lot of food or doesn't feel particularly dry if it is like that early in the morning um, and not being afraid of it not being necessarily like the world's most whole food or micronutrient dense food because at the end of the day that's not what you're eating it for and so as you say, like that education piece is going to be really important in terms of like, why are you eating the things that you're eating? And yeah, what is it going to do for you? Yeah, I love that. And I do have a lot of clients coming to me quite worried about having those more processed foods. And like you said, that education piece is so important here. Um, And I think, you know, it's really important to highlight that no, this food isn't supposed to support your health. It's supposed to support your performance. Like that is the main goal of this pre-training snack or whatever it is. And that's okay. That's a really small part of your day. And then the rest of the day, your main meals, when you do have more time to digest that food and really nourish your body, that's when we can look at more of your whole foods most of the time. But the purpose of that you know, more processed food before training 
is actually yeah for optimizing performance but in some cases in some cases it can also support your health too because if that pre-training snack or that more refined source of carbohydrates is going to help you get in enough energy in the day to prevent you from you know having relative energy deficiency or not eating enough um, then that in those ways those more processed foods can also support your health and performance at the same time We hope you're enjoying this episode of the AWPT podcast. I'm Kayla, the founder of AWPT University, and if you're here, you're probably a dedicated fitness professional, personal trainer, or online coach who aspires to create an impact in the women's health and fitness industry through up-leveling your knowledge and skills, servicing your clients to the highest standard, and building a business that changes both you and your clients' lives. Because we value your continuous education and want to reward our podcast listeners who are committed to their growth and learning, we want to gift you $200 off our OG AWPT eight-week certification. This comprehensive online course covers women's anatomy and biomechanics, training and programming for women, female-specific nutrition and health, training during pregnancy and postpartum, peri- and postmenopausal considerations, and so much more. Visit www.awptuniversity.com today and use the code AWPTPODCAST, one word and all uppercase, at checkout for $200 off. We've also linked it in the show notes for your convenience. Now, back to the episode. And I suppose if we dive a little bit deeper into fueling for performance, and we're talking about, I suppose, like sports-specific performance, um, what would be the differences, and you touched on that a little bit earlier in terms of, you know, fiber and fast acting carbs and stuff like that. But I guess in terms of aerobic performance or aerobic sports versus more anaerobic sports, um, what would be the difference in terms of the utilization of fuel for, for those different types of activities? Yeah, good question. So when we look at the difference between different sports and the fuel required, we look at the different energy systems that are used for those sports. So we know that aerobic will use up a lot of your carbohydrates as a main fuel source, um, particularly as the intensity gets higher. Um then sort of the other sports where you don't have maybe as much high intensity or your duration of your sport isn't as long as sort of, you know, a triathlon or a big endurance race, that's when the carbohydrates might not be as essential or needed as in as large amounts. Um, So really looking at the amounts, I'd say carbohydrates out of anything is going to be the main um, difference and something that changes a lot depending on the sport. I'd say we can generally keep protein around similar amounts. We can generally ensure that we've got enough enough um, sort of healthy fats as a baseline and then sort of build on that. But I'd say sort of for your more high intensity or endurance sports, we are entering that sort of glycolytic system where our body is chewing up glycogen and and using glucose as a fuel source for the majority of the time. So if we can sort of capitalize on that and make sure that we're providing our body with enough carbohydrates to fuel that that performance, that's when you can really see um, the difference between sort of just getting through a session, slogging through it, you might hit the wall um, sort of halfway through in comparison to really being able to push that intensity for the whole duration of the session, um, coming out of it feeling good and not completely wrecked um, and, you know, just really optimizing your performance for that reason. Um, So I'd say, yeah, the main things between different sports would be um, changing up the carbohydrates and then as well of course you know some sports um, will lead to a bigger um, or larger energy expenditure than others so we might look at you know different energy requirements for different sports depending on volume intensity and stuff like that and I suppose because AWPT stands for applied women's physiology and training and so often we do look at different topics through the lens of gender differences or sex differences, would you say that there is a difference in terms of the utilization of certain fuel sources or macronutrients for men versus women when it comes to performance? 
I'd say if we're looking at sort of, yeah, men versus women in the fuel utilization during training, we are really just going to look at the type of training it is. And there generally isn't going to be sort of differences in recommendations between men and women for, yeah, the different sort of sports that we're doing. It would just be more about the type of activity you're doing. And I'd say, if anything, it would be more about the amounts of energy required to support that. So um, generally, for example, men will have a larger muscle mass and will often require more energy than females if we're doing the exact, exact same activity. So I'd say there could be differences in, yeah, amounts of energy that you need. It's generally um, sort of recommended around your total body weight and how much sort of for example, carbohydrate, how many grams you need per kilo of body weight for a certain amount of activity um, rather than sort of, yeah, differences between men and women. And what about in terms of um, hydration levels um, or even I suppose when we're talking about just nutrition in general for men versus women and female athletes versus male athletes because I'm sure you know, in that sense, there are potentially going to be some differences in terms of like potentially deficiencies or, you know, iron levels um, would be, I'd imagine, like a big part for like sex differences. Um, but even, I suppose, regardless of that, I think something that is not necessarily talked about a lot when it is coming to that like performance discussion is hydration and electrolyte levels often we talk about food but not necessarily water so first of all I suppose like what are electrolytes why do we need them um and also how can we incorporate more of that into our um nutrition plan yeah great question so electrolytes things like your sodium potassium um, and things like that are actually found in our, in our food day to day. So we can, we do get electrolytes from just eating food. Um, and obviously, I'd say most people know electrolytes from having it as a supplement that they add into water. But I guess knowing that we get it from food really can help you uh, understand why we may or may not need to actually add them from a supplement perspective as well. So generally, I'd say day to day, um, adding in extra electrolytes to our fluids and our water um, isn't essential. It would be for, for the general population, it would be something that is likely required for an athlete who maybe excessively sweats or is training um, in humid conditions where they're sweating a lot um, or they've got, you know, really long um, training sessions, things like that, where they're losing a lot of body fluids and they're unable to have enough electrolytes through their food or at the certain time that they need it. Um, that's when they can supplement with um, electrolytes through, you know, different powders, whether it's Hydrolyte, Powerade or whatever the supplement is. Um, so really just recognizing that in some cases it can be really important to supplement with electrolytes. Um, and then in other cases, like for the general population, it probably isn't super necessary Necessary, and we can get it from food or just sort of adding extra salt to our food as well. Um, so, yeah, it's not something to be afraid of, but it is something also that is, you know, essential for performance. Um, if, we're, if we have deficiencies that can really affect our performance with different electrolytes um, and other nutrients too. Um, so as long as we sort of stay on top of those, which is generally not necessarily going right out of your way to add it in for the general population, um, just sort of staying on top of general levels um, is sufficient for yeah, general health. Yeah, I think the salt piece is a really interesting one too because it's one of those things, I suppose, like similar to carbs that there's been a lot of um, back and forth in terms of like fear-mongering around like how much salt we have in our diet. Um, and so, again, like being able to educate your clients on the benefits of salt and what that is going to do from, I guess, like a hydrolate and high hydration perspective and whether or not they should be adding a bit extra into their diet or like can they put in a little bit into their water and also how, if they're going to put it into their water, how do they make that more palatable so they're not drinking salt water, um, like all of that kind of stuff, having those kind of educational conversations so people understand the why again behind what they're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I do see on social media such extremes between with that salt conversation. You'll have the people saying, you know, don't add salt to anything. You should try and reduce salt as much as possible because it's bad for your health. Then we have people saying add salt to everything, have tablespoons of it. Um, You need all of these supplements day to day, even if you're not an elite athlete or whatever it is. So there is such a broad spectrum of people recommending different things in regards to salts. Um, But as usual, it is very individual and it depends on, you know, your level of activity, how much fluids you're you're losing um, and also what your day-to-day sort of looks like. So for example, um, if you're adding salt to your food or you're having pre-made foods that already have a lot of sodium in them and we're also having sort of your fruits and vegetables that contain potassium and other electrolytes that you need you're probably likely going to be getting enough day to day whereas if you're someone who likes your food pretty bland you don't add much salt you don't eat many processed foods with lots of sodium um, you're not eating say many vegetables that are high in potassium these are the times when you might need to look at then supplementing um, outside of the foods that you're having or just incorporate more of that into your day-to-day routine. Um, I guess the good thing as well to note is, for example, if someone was to sort of make their own electrolyte drink from just water, adding some salt to it, we could maybe even look at adding, you know, the tiniest bit of some sugar, whether that's a little bit of honey, whether that's just like a little bit of sugar. We know that a little bit of glucose can help help with the uptake of um, water electrolytes and just overall hydration. So that combination of salts and a little bit of sugar, um, we know that in some of our top hydration drinks, they actually do have a little bit of sugar rather than being completely sugar-free. And that's because it actually really does help with your hydration status too. So um, just finding that balance and how much you need personally of yeah, different electrolytes and water throughout the day. Um, yeah, it's a really personal thing, but I wouldn't sort of look at either side of those extremes that you would often see on social media for that reason. Yeah, it's such a, I guess, a reoccurring point, I think, in all discussions around food and training and just anything really is that like there is nuance and there's going to be a question of you know, what is best for the individual and like that's why blanket statements obviously don't work. Um, But yeah, and as you said, like the education piece is also one thing in terms of, you know, the sugar in the drinks with the salt and all of that kind of stuff if you are choosing to go down that route. But then also too from like a taste perspective, like I don't know, there's something about putting salt in my water that I'm like, no, thank you. That sounds awful. But yeah, like if I can put in some honey, then sure, maybe I'll do it. Or you know, what are other alternatives if you're going to do go down like the the sports drink kind of route in terms of like a Gatorade or something like that, or like hydrolyte sachets and stuff like that. Again, what is going to work best for the individual in terms of their needs, but also in terms of their preferences too. I think is um, something that we don't want to like not touch on in any kind of discussion around food and nutrition and dietetics and stuff like that. Um, I suppose to wrap up the conversation and we sort of touched on it a little bit earlier in terms of um, the nutritional requirements and the differences potentially between like males and females. But I think when we're talking about female athletes in particular, I think it would be remiss not to touch on, I suppose, like the female athlete triad and I guess like the different um, concerns around female athletes versus just like athletes in general um, and having a conversation about, yeah, the female athlete triad, but also within that, you know, secondary amenorrhea and over-exercising and what that is going to do in terms of having an impact on a woman's cycle and, and yeah, all of that kind of stuff. So first of all, what is the female athlete triad? If you could explain that and then, yeah, what are the three different pillars under that? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that, well, the female athlete triad is now forming like a smaller part of a bigger conversation in relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, So it comes down to sort of that 
dysfunction of your regular sort of hormone cycle, that low energy availability. We look at your bone health, um, your menstrual cycle and things like that. Um, And just making sure that we have all of those aspects sort of looked after, because if we're not getting enough total energy day to day supporting not only our sort of general sort of training and performance, but also our general health. So getting in enough energy to support our normal bodily functions, our normal hormone um, sort of profiles, also getting in enough energy to support our training and recovery. Um, If we don't get enough energy to support those things, then that's when these sort of things can be impacted. We can get poor sort of bone health. We can look at, you know, if that was left for a long time, that could lead to something like your osteoporosis. If we have um, loss of menstrual cycle from not having enough energy to support that, then yeah, like you said, can get that hypothalamic amenorrhea um, where that's going to also really impact our health long-term. Um, but also, yeah, just a huge red flag for relative energy deficiency when we do see that loss of period and wanting to get that back. Um, also things that come into it can be something like your immune system health, or if you've got frequent injury or illness, um, low mood, low libido, all these sorts of things come into that overarching picture of relative energy deficiency um, where that female sort of athlete triad sits into it. Um, So making sure that we are getting in enough total energy to support our day-to-day energy requirements on top of our training requirements as well. We'll make sure that we are really supporting our overall health and supporting all of those aspects of health so that we don't fall into, um, yeah, losing, you know, our period or getting poor bone health or whatever it may be. Um, So, yeah, super important to just sort of stay on top of that and making sure that you're eating enough. Yeah, because I think the the conversation around you know losing your period and and all of that kind of stuff is finally starting to be a more i guess open dialogue with people and with health experts and and stuff like that but equally too there's obviously like the whole conversation around just because something is common doesn't make it normal um and i think yeah that you know loss of period and loss of menstrual cycle and ovulation and all of that kind of stuff unfortunately and especially within that athletic community like it can be quite common um but again prefacing that with like that doesn't make it normal and it doesn't mean that that is something that should be happening and so you know there's obviously then a conversation around well how can we prevent it from happening in the first place but then to you know if it does happen what are the steps that we have to go through to um, reverse it and, you know, bring that period back or that menstrual cycle back, I should say. Um, Because as you say, like there are consequences. It's not just like, okay, cool. Like I get to skip a bleed every month. Like, woo. Um, You know, as you say, like not having a menstrual cycle is going to have an impact on bone health. It's going to have an impact on obviously hormonal levels. It's, you know, going to have a major impact on the female athlete. Um, and so I suppose to like wrap up the conversation you touched on in order to, I guess, like avoid that issue or that concern is making sure that there is like the, the client or the athlete is having enough energy and therefore enough food. Um, if you have a client that comes to you and says, oh, by the way, I've haven't had a period for six months. Yay. What would be, um, I guess the conversation that you have in that moment. And then what would be the process that you have, you know, in terms of helping them get their menstrual cycle back? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, obviously a situation like that, it can be exciting for the person losing their period and not having a bleed every month. Um, very convenient, but also, yeah, like we said, not good for your health. It's going to impact your performance as well. And it is something that we really need to address. Um, so, you know, the first things that we would look at is sort of having that conversation of the importance of having a, a regular cycle Um, and why it's so important for your health and performance. And then we could look at sort of how this has come about. So has this been from um, intentional underfueling? So sort of those disordered eating or eating disorder behaviors where you're really, where the person is really going out of their way to eat less um, and not 
eating enough to support their training, um, maybe from an aesthetic point of view? Um, or is this from unintentional underfueling where the person simply doesn't know how much they need to be eating to support their training? They might not have a good appetite. So um, they might be thinking that they're eating a lot, but they might just not be eating enough um, to support what they're doing. So sort of really seeing how this has come about. Um, and then in future, sort of looking at some strategies to then start to really fuel your body correctly by having enough. And that might be sort of by overcoming those disordered eating behaviors, or it might be by educating on um, you're currently not having enough. It might not be intentional that you're eating a lot less, but these are some strategies where you can implement more food um, to really support your health day to day. So we'd look at sort of as a basis, just making sure that that person is eating enough and to overcome um, HA, then just also looking at sometimes you need to be in a surplus as well. Sometimes you do need to eat above your maintenance requirements for a set period of time to get back, uh, which can be scary for some people, but that's sometimes what is necessary and it often takes a lot of patience. Um, so really being there as that sort of support person as well to work through that and talk through that can be really important in this situation too. We would also look at things like reducing stress, um, potentially reducing your training volume and intensity. Um, we can look at, yeah, making sure sort of nutrition overall getting in enough nutrients that we need such as your iron or whatever else it is if there are any deficiencies there so there are yeah a lot of different perspectives that we can look at in getting back your period over time it often does take a lot of patience um, but it is something that's possible by implementing these different things yeah and I suppose sort of as you say like figuring out why it might have occurred in the first place and Obviously, in order to lose a bleed, which is sort of, I guess, like the symptom of um, what the deeper issue is, which is, you know, I guess like a lack of ovulation um, in most cases, yeah, sort of figuring out, okay, well, why have we stopped ovulating and, you know, how much of that is, yeah, sort of underfueling, how much of that is, yeah, overexercising, how much of that is stress on the body hormones, all of that kind of stuff. And I, and I think it's important. I always like to remind the podcast listeners of scope of practice when it comes to anything um, really in terms of, yeah, making sure that in order to best support your clients, unless you are an accredited dietitian or nutritionist or, you know, whatever it, whatever it is, um, don't be afraid to refer out and so that they your client can have the best support possible because um, again as we said like just because you know that HA or loss of menzies is common doesn't make it normal and so yeah we don't want to normalize that process and we obviously like want to help support our clients to bring that back and so yeah don't be afraid to refer out if you're not qualified to actually be giving you know the tests that might be required to like test those hormone levels or test you know those um micronutrient levels and all of that kind of stuff um as well as providing meal plans or you know all of that kind of stuff um i think yeah i always just like to remind the listeners that if you're not qualified to do something don't and help them find someone who is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes even if you're unsure as a practitioner um, whether you need to refer out, it can always be a good idea to just ask and be like, you know, um, this client's GP said losing their period was normal, which I uh, sadly hear a lot of the time and it makes me <laughs> quite mad to hear that GPs will tell athletes that losing their period is normal, which it's, it's not, it's common like you said but absolutely not normal and not healthy um but you know sort of if you're hearing conflicting things even like from a practitioner perspective it can be a good idea to even reach out to someone um to even ask if referring would be a good idea or what they would recommend in this situation can always be good definitely so I suppose yeah that is the perfect place to wrap up this episode. We've touched on so much here and I think there's an absolute gold mine of information. As I said off air, I don't think we've ever really covered fueling, 
for performance and sort of sports specific nutrition on the podcast. So, I mean, I know I've learned so much within this conversation and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. Um, where can our listeners find you to be able to find more of this kind of information? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my Instagram page is at Fueling Performance. So that's F-U-E-L-L-I-N-G, performance. Um, also post on the Ideal Nutrition page, which is where I work. Um, but generally, yeah, Fueling Performance is where I post a lot of the sort of sports nutrition content and overall sort of general health nutrition tips. Amazing. And I'll have both of those accounts linked in the show notes so that people have no excuse but to click on that and find you and follow along and stay up to date and educated on all of that information. But yeah, thank you so much, Monica, for coming on the AWPT podcast today. I, as I said, have really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure our listeners have as well. I really enjoyed it too. Thanks so much for having me. listening to the AWPT podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends and fellow coaches and subscribe for weekly episodes and content.